This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. I think that people, um, there's been misunderstandings is probably what I would say about what I'm trying to assert. And one of the things that the last year has taught me is kind of the ways in which you misheard. And it doesn't mean that it's actually what I said. It's what people heard. And I think there's two ways in which when I talk about what the Black church has done, the people misunderstand what I mean by Black church or Black Christianity Mm. or Black Bible reading, more broadly speaking. And one is to assume that I believe that like black skin gives rise to certain interpretive like mm. um, ideas. In other words, that the magic is in the skin itself, that like black people have this special superpower that allows them to read the Bible. Wait, people heard that? People say, well, there is this thing as black Bible reading, white Bible reading. There's only Bible reading. That's kind of the, the uh, common misunderstanding. Okay. Colorblind Bible reading. Yeah, colorblind Bible reading. But what I try to explain to them is black skin impacts how I, how I'm treated in the world. I live as a racialized person and those um, experiences cause me to ask certain questions about God. And I bring those questions that I have about God to the scriptures and I see in the scriptures answers to those questions. And so one way when I speak about black Bible reading, I'm talking about, and because not everyone's experiences are the same, There's a cluster of experiences that tend to coalesce around blackness in America. And so we tend to bring similar questions to biblical text. And so, for example, because of our particular experiences of systemic oppression, we are more apt to ask the question in a pressing way, what does God feel or think about structural injustice? And when we turn to the Bible and we ask the question from that perspective, we see in the Bible the fact that God does care. The important part to understand about that is that the answer is actually in the text. We're not imposing meanings upon the text. Mm-hmm. We're discerning meanings that are there, and we can see those things because we're asking the right questions. Now, it doesn't mean that someone who's who's white or, some, or of a different ethnicity can't see those things. It's just that sometimes their experiences might blind them to certain things that are there. And so one way of talking about Black Bible reading is the ways in which um, our experiences as African-Americans bring a certain posture to biblical text. Now, there's a second way of thinking about it, which may get closer to um, the question at hand, is that I'm talking about Black Bible reading as an interpretive community that persists through time. Mm -hmm. In other words, Black churches are kind of a historical fact. Black churches were founded because they were mistreated, I mean, apart from the Pentecostals who start in a slightly different um, context. But the Black Baptists and the Black Methodists, for example, um, exist because they were mistreated in white churches and they founded their own independent churches for the sake of being able to practice Christianity properly, because they couldn't practice Christianity properly properly under the oppressive systems in which they were um, housed at the time. Now, these communities that exist actually produce works of theology and biblical interpretation. They have sermons and all of these things. And sometimes these churches 
find, found themselves in theological debates during, for example, the slavery, anti-slavery movement. It wasn't that it was the only black people. It was only black people who opposed slavery. That's not true. But in general, it was black Christians who were abolitionists for Christian reasons. Hmm. And they were arguing with a, and the best way to describe these churches are white churches. And so when I talk about black Bible reading, and it's not because I believe that like, um, you know, that blackness is this magical power that gives people insights. It's a historical community that persists through time that has left the deposit. And so when you go back and look and say, okay, black churches were, were making this claim and white churches were making that claim, then that's just a historical fact. And so people really believe that um, somehow pretending as if there wasn't a black church brings Christian unity. I don't know how that works. Or pretending as if there aren't um, Black experiences that give rise to certain questions that we then bring to the Bible as themselves divisive. divisive. In other words, Black culture in some contexts isn't allowed to exist. Um, and so when I talk about Black Bible reading um, in the Black church, it's asserting the right of Black culture to exist in America and asserting the right um, for black churches to exist in America and asserting that God has used those things for his good. So do you think um, that kind of right to exist and uh, right right to theologically assert, um, I think I think some people might hear that and they go, okay, um, yeah, so there's a black church and they have their own thoughts on the world. But I feel like you're making a stronger claim that I would probably want you to make. Maybe you're not, but maybe I wouldn't want you to go that go down the road and say it's not just that they produce their own biblical theology, but it's it's theology that everybody else needs to hear. Yeah. Well, first I would say something like there are black churches more than there's a black church. In other words, just like any other um, cultural community, there isn't one form of black Christianity. There's mm -hmm. a variety of expressions and debates and internal tensions. Um, the thing that I, you're correct that no, like I'm actually asserting like chapter one in my book is called the South's got something to say. And when I say the South's got something to say, it's not just, it's, it's the South is a metaphor. Mm -hmm. In other words, what I was trying to get across was there's a certain expression of black Christianity that needed space to exist in the world. And it is simply a matter of historical record. And this is where people tell on themselves a lot, Drew, is that, no one, I've never seen anyone complain about Scottish theology. There's a Scottish theology group, SBL and IBR. No one says there is no Scottish theology. Yeah. No one says that there is no German tradition of biblical studies. No one says that there is no British evangelicalism different than Australian evangelicalism. The only group that is not allowed to exist are racialized minorities. In other words, they want to pretend that there's only one form of American Christianity and the normative form of American Christianity is some variant upon one of the, the white expressions of Christianity. And so what I want to say is that, no, blackness in America is a culture, and, and, it, and it's a culture within a larger American culture. We're not separate from American culture. We're part of it. But as a, as a subpart of the wider American culture, we have our own issues and concerns that influence how we do theology. And it's just simply dishonest to say that, um, for example, that like we, that other theological traditions aren't allowed, that are there are certain theological traditions that are allowed to have distinctive voices, but the black voice is always viewed as dangerous. And I'm just calling hypocrisy on that mm -hmm. because like people will even say like, I, like we have a word in the English language called an Anglophile. 
I just love British stuff. I just love British culture. And so, like, there's not just an appreciation of British theology. There's appreciation of the temperament and the culture out of which it arises. And we recognize that. The reason we want we make students learn French, German, and English is not simply because um, the French and the um, Germans are um, important to be read, but it's important to get outside of just the English-speaking world and see a different perspective on things. And if you don't think, for example, the the the, the German theological enterprise has been influenced by kind of its history and its in its cultural context, um, it just it just it, it boggles them up. The example that I use for my students is everybody tells the story of the Reformation the same way. I mean, this is going to be the popular version. We're not don't yell right, at me, right. Reformation scholars. Okay, <laughs> I know it's more complicated than this, but everyone starts by talking about. What Ju- what Luther was experiencing in Germany at the time, in other words, the the, the common kind of Protestant um, talking point is the particular hypocrisy of Roman Catholicism in Germany. Even if it's mm-hmm. not true, it's a story that we tell, and Luther is the is theologizing from that context about. Paul and justification, all these other things. And had Luther not been in Germany at that time, the Reformation might have looked really different. But people also acknowledge that what Luther experienced now, I think we recognize, wasn't objective Catholicism, right? He experienced a variant of it. But we say, despite the fact that Luther was culturally conditioned by what's going on in Germany, he didn't experience like Catholic, he wasn't debating pure Catholicism. We still, if you're a Protestant, I would hope, acknowledge that Luther says something somewhere fundamentally true about the human experience despite those limitations, Hmm. right? So we tell a culturally thick and rich account of the Reformation, and it's not just random Bible reading. It's culturally located. So when I say, as a Black person, my experiences in America influences how I do the theological project. It doesn't mean that because I'm I'm influenced in those ways that those insights are any less true and they're any less for the rest of the world. And so if I can say I give, and and by the way, it's not me. It's like, this is not like some kind of unique, I'm not Luther, you know, battling the empire or whatever. But if I can have something that I contribute to the academic conversation is that I'm I'm, I'm continuing in a long tradition of uh, black Christians or, or black intellectuals who are saying our culture has value and that what we say is worthy and not worthy just as juxtaposed against someone else, but as a place where in which God is doing um, good and helpful work. Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. Um, so part of what we're doing with the biblical mind is helping people to understand in, in a similar way that the the Hebrew culture values and way of reasoning about the world has its own value uh, apart from the Hellenistic Judaism that comes and eventually even the New, New Testament needs to be taken on its own terms. Uh, various friends of mine in the African-American uh, communities have pointed out that when you talk about the issue of value, why is the black church, the, why are the black church's uh, methods and theology not valued? They'll say it comes down to epistemology. We have a different way of reasoning through things, so we want to use story more. Um, we and now some of this goes back to Africana. Uh, this is uh, 
We're going to use story. We're going to use body. We're going to use community to think through issues together. We're more collective as a whole. Um, and I'm sure you could debate this on the particulars. Um, but essentially, they're saying the way we think through issues is not the way that's valued in our culture. Uh, where would you situate yourself in that conversation? Well, I would actually, I would I mean, I'm not going to um, speak beyond my competence around um, different ways in, uh, of thinking and being as relates to white communities versus black communities. I think that, that can get a little bit tricky. But I, but I do think there's actually something else that's going on there. Hmm. And one is the distorting, the distorting influence of power. Hmm. In other words, we tend to think a lot about social location. And we think about the importance of social location for the underclass. In other words, the Bible is written largely by disenfranchised people, the Jewish people who are often, um, you know, not the most powerful nation around. And especially when you get to the New Testament, these are mostly, you know, outsiders to the power structure. And when you start thinking about what does it mean then if you're a person who, who's also disenfranchised, there are going to be places in which you find points of connection. So that's the reason why African-Americans historically found so much meaning from the Old Testament narratives that are being so formative for our own tradition. You know, you know, Daniel in the lion's den is someone, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are people without political right. power who can only trust God in the context of a foreign land, in the context of a wider empire. Well, that, of course, resonates for Black people. Now, the, but what, so what I'm saying is like, it's that's the reason when I say that like, black skin isn't in every place magical, because somebody somebody with social location, the social location allows us to see things that are actually there. But it's also the case that power can be distorting as a social location. So in other words, if you have resources and money and you have a, a vested interest in reading the Bible in such a way that those resources aren't challenged, then that's a distorting way of reading. And so, of course, you're not going to want to attend to a narrative um, of the Bible that goes from slavery to freedom to, to a community who, once they're free, are called to always remember. Mm -hmm. Right. This is kind of one of the I can talk to an Old Testament person. One of the one of the central themes of the Old Testament is that you have to remember. And that the things that you experienced in in slavery created a certain disposition that informs how you treat other people. That's a narrative arc. The narrative arc, you know, centering on the person of the king who's going to be compassionate, all of those things. Well, of course, it, like you, you're never going to win the I can oppress people argument based upon the narrative scope of scripture. So what do you do? You develop a, my, a myopic interpretive technique that that screens out large sections of narrative because it serves that purpose, right? So if you want to look at like the African-American interpretive method, we turn in America to narrative because the narrative was on our side. And I'm not saying that the individual verses were on the side of the oppressor. What I'm saying is a disjointed reading serve certain status quo. I mean, why do they edit? Why did they, when they, when they wrote the slave Bible, why did they take out the book of Exodus? So I don't, 
And so what I'm saying is on, answer that question for people who a have never heard of the slave Bible okay, and B sorry. don't know why they took out Exodus. So when they um, wrote, sorry, Thomas Jefferson and, um, and others have written, I mean, basically produced a thing called the slave Bible. They edited out, edited out certain stories and events for the sake of giving to the slaves so they can kind of be Christians. But they edited out, interestingly enough, they edited out a lot more of Paul's letters than people give him credit for. It's an interesting mm -hmm. thing about that. that they thought of a lot of Paul wasn't good for them. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a question for another day. Um, they edited out things like the book of Exodus. They edited out some of the passages about justice and the concern for the foreigner. And they did that because they wanted to pass on a, a, a denarrativized version of Christianity that substantiated their place in power. And so what I don't think that people understand is, or they don't take seriously enough, how distorting power can be to our reading of the Bible. And I say this as someone who lives in America. I'm not separate from this influence and this privilege and this power. I'm a part of it. And so one of the things that, that, I, that, I, that I say to my students quite often is if you assume, for example, the people of the New Testament are often disenfranchised and politically powerless people as a church community. And you have a, a series of pastoral interventions by Paul and others trying to make sense of like how you function as a church mm -hmm. in the context of empire. And then the church becomes the empire and they treat that pastoral, those pastoral realities as the ideal, then you've distorted it. Because what Christianity does is it gives you a disposition or an imagination rooted in what God, who God is and what Christ, what Christ has shown us. And there's all kinds of ways to theologically imagine a world that has more options on the table than might have been within the imagination of people in the first century. Because now we are a majority. We don't actually have any New Testament text written to a group of people who could change societies in the sense of voting out rulers or 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 or, or um, establishing laws and so that requires a bit of theological imagination well who has a vested interest in not having a theological imagination the people whose power will be upset by the exercise of it mm -hmm. and so that's the reason why i'm not necessarily sure that i i'm not d doubting the other part but I think we should ask the question of how does power influence us? And forgive me for, for using, taking up too much time on this question. Oh, no, it's but good. I, but, I, but I've, I've thought about this a lot through the lens of the Old Testament um, or, or the Hebrew scriptures. I need to make sure. I don't know. Oh, there's a reason <laughs> we're, why. we're okay. We're yeah. Anyway, I, I was thinking about um, there's kind of like two tests that Israel has to deal with. And one is the test of struggle. That's like the, the, the wilderness narrative where they're having to depend upon God day by day by day by day by day. Then there's also the test of prosperity. Mm. Once you're in the land and you're, and you're fat and you're happy, you got You know, that's a different kind of test, which is why the importance of memory is there. And so I think that the church in America and definitely portions of the white church have had the test of prosperity. Hmm. And in a lot of cases, they just failed that test. And the interesting thing that's going to happen is that's the that's the test that all of us has to take if we survive and live long enough to 
make it to a place of influence and power. And so, yeah, I guess what I like to say is the way that I think about it is a lot of um, a lot of the church at different points in its history have failed to test the power and the, the test of prosperity. Um, and and the black church for a variety of reasons, and this is not to make suffering good. Right. The black church is because it was under the test of suffering. Um, it's often had a different disposition. Which Paul has had a few things to say about this under the test of suffering and, and how that um, reveals things both in God's and the truth of God's word and, and one, in ourselves. Sorry. One day, I don't, I don't know if y'all are going to buy it. Um, one day I want to write a whole book about power. Hmm. Because one, I just think that Christians have a, some Christians have a really distorted theology of power. And Paul seems to have rethought power through the cross. One of the things that I, that I love about Paul, and, and, and I know he, he, he gets hate for a variety of reasons. He gets pushed back on for a variety of reasons. But there's one, one particular rhetorical instinct that I like about Paul that he does on quite a few occasions across his letters. He said, when if Paul is pressed, and they say, Paul, bring out your CV. Hmm. It is always a theology. I mean, it's often a theology of suffering and weakness. Hmm. Like they boast in this, I'm going to boast in it. I'm going to boast in my weakness. Um, you know, whatever I had, I counted as nothing for the surprise and worth of knowing Christ for whom I suffered the loss of all things. Um, and so I think that the idea, maybe I'll put it this way. And, I, and I've said this a lot, so forgive me if... if Christianity is not just an ends, right? That that as a Christian, you receive forgiveness through the cross. And it's ethical for that. It's also ethical in a means. Like the way in which God saves us is important. And God saves us not by coming down and smashing us and blowing us to smithereens. He does it by an act of, 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 of vulnerability and weakness and love. And if God transforms the world through weakness and love and death and he then that has to influence how we think we must exercise power as christians in other words too much of our theology of power has nothing to do with the cross of christ and that's what i think has been the problem we've had this this idea that um we need to get what we want by any means necessary and then once we have what we want we can do the christian thing with it and that's always been deadly for the church I'm going to leave that alone because I want to go hard down that road, but I probably shouldn't. Um, yes. But <laughs> we should talk about what you actually asked me to come here for. I'll answer your question. Oh, no, no, no. Yes. That, that's good. Cause I, I think I want to take everything you just said and apply it to things like the pastor being an executive function of a church, a singular charismatic leader of a church that kind of pulls the whole thing together. Um, yeah, I, maybe, maybe, maybe um, the things that we have to do to be, I don't have a problem with large churches. Let me like be really clear because people will sometimes hear this the wrong way. But if getting there requires you to step on people, then maybe mm-hmm. you shouldn't get there. Mm-hmm. And maybe we will learn healthier models of being together if we if we committed to being together in such a way that models um, uh, um, the way of Jesus. I mean, Paul's 
life was cruciform. He suffered for his people. And I think that we have to be willing to suffer. And you have to do that without kind of having some kind of masochistic. The interesting thing about this, sorry, and this is the important part, and then we should probably say something about the black people. But let me let me say this here. That theology of suffering is often twisted to say that it's the job of women and black people to suffer for the redemption of others. Hmm. In other words, the burden of forgiveness um, and suffering is often placed upon the shoulders of people whom society always places in that often place in that position anyway. But Paul doesn't talk about suffering as a way of, of, of reinstalling the status quo and saying people bear up under it. He talks about him willingly, because Paul had another path through life that doesn't involve him traveling around these churches. And he was a Roman citizen. Paul's suffering was one in which he, because he used what he had for the sake of other people. And so I think that if you talk about a theology of suffering that is only used to, to allow the continued abuse of, of the vulnerable, I think God's going to have something to say about that. Hmm. But if you say the suffering spread all around, that the, that, that the people in power are, are willing to suffer, that the insults of those who insulted you have fallen upon me, that, that, we kind of, that, that they enter into the disrepute for standing in solidarity with um, um, black and brown people, then I think that, that's a much more healthy way of looking at it. So what I'm saying is I've seen, it's just really hard that I will, I will die. I will go to my grave believing that forgiveness is true and good and beautiful. Like, I'm never going to just give up on forgiveness as, as an important part of what it means to be a Christian. But there is also, at the same time, the weaponization of Black forgiveness um, that allows for continued abuse that I'm also going to resist. Uh, so we are doing a whole series on forgiveness and repentance uh, in which we are going to also have um, Rachel Den Hollander and her husband. Uh, we'll have um, Jacob Onyumbe, who's a Congolese scholar, um, right on truth and reconciliation. Um, yeah, I, I'm very interested in developing a biblical view of, of forgiveness that isn't just, I don't know, this kind of mushy, gushy, like we have to feel good in our hearts resolve, yeah. which is great when it happens, but we have to find, there's. I think there's something else going on too. So There is a lot going on, but don't get me started on forgiveness. Okay, <laughs> okay we'll leave that one to if the side. Want, if you want to see, I, I wrote an article about the dangerous politics we will never forgive. Um, last month, so people can look that up in the New York Times. That's where that okay. went. So, excellent. Say, I get, I got to say a little bit about my theology, my my beliefs about forgiveness there. So, yeah. Well, you, hey, uh, if you can find this little journal called the New York Times, you can uh, look that up. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't trying to name drop. I'm just trying no, no, to no, 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 no. I feel bad. It, it it does feel weird to say things like that, but that's just where it is. I I think we should celebrate that. That's where it is. That's not something to look down upon. That's something to be excited about. Um. I was reading, I've been, uh, I read a book by this guy named James Byrd at Vanderbilt who wrote on the use of the Bible in the Civil War. Interestingly, he mainly wrote on the, the white use of the Bible in the Civil War. Uh, yeah. And he, he only touched the, the black use a little bit. And I was at the same time reading Lisa Bowen's African American readings of, of Paul. And one thing that struck me, I was just, it was day and night, stark comparison, is how lazy the white readings typically were. <laughs> I mean, he had he had lots of great analysis and lots of you know what was going on there, 
But essentially, it was, as you said, you know, I guess uh, just spell it out for us what might seem obvious to you and I. Why why is the lazier reading going to be the worst reading, given that you're in power and you're trying to justify things? But I mean, I guess the, the, where I'm getting at here is down the road, we see the problem is, well, if I'm in power and what's, what do I do to compel myself to take the harder reading or, or what community do I participate in to get so, that better reading? I, I, I think that um, one of the things that I was trying to do in my book was offer the black church to, well, a lot of things that was going on. One of the things I was trying to do was was show that the black church has something to give to the world. Um, and in this, and, and there's actually a section where I said, like, we need black biblical interpretation. We need Ugandan biblical interpretation. We need Korean biblical interpretation. Because no community's, like, location is going to be helpful in every situation. And so I think that we need each other across culture and across time to hear God well. And when people hear that, they often get it wrong. As if I'm saying you can't be a Christian or that you can't live. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, some of this stuff is kind of basic to being, you know, love God, love your neighbor kind of thing. But it is also the true, it's also true that like any scholar worth their salt or any professor is going to tell a student, you know what, I, I I want you to read this passage, but I want you to look at five other sources. Mm-hmm. And they may say, I want you to go back and read someone who wrote during the Reformation. And I also want you to go back and read someone who was in the first 400 years of Christianity. And I want you to read a non-Western source. Because all of those different perspectives don't make the Bible less. It gives us more of a, of a community of interpreters. And so what I, what I want to say is the best way to avoid myopic Bible reading is to join the great cloud of witnesses across time and culture. And one of those cultures is the black church in America over the last 250 years. Um, But that isn't like one of the things I can tell you, my own reading of the scriptures have been enriched in recent years by reading some um, Asian theology and some of my Latina and Latino brothers and sisters. And like I've read some of the stuff there and it's been challenged. I will never forget some of the reflections on on Abraham as a as a migrant that I'd never really considered because it just wasn't my content. Mm-hmm. Um and so it's not that one of the things that I think can happen that can be really dangerous is that each minority community can say to white Christians, listen to me, mm-hmm. and we don't listen to other people. And so I don't feel like it's like everybody's talking to the white male saying, please listen to me. They can't see this. I'm making a a pointing gesture. Um, But instead, it's a community at a table. And at the center of that table is the word of God. And it's open in front of all of us. And so if there's a model that I'm trying to transform, it's that the book used to be at the head, like at one spot in the table. And that person would read it and tell it to everybody else. And I, everybody has access to that book and we're all offering it. Um, and so that's what, I, that's what I think is really important is um, I think that truth exists. I think that the Bible has a, a, a message that it conveys about what it means to be human and what does it mean to follow God that is beautiful and compelling and that stirs my imagination. And I believe that we need each other to, to hear and obey that message well. 
And that's what I would say. Um, and just be in, in a little epistemic humility. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that that is amazing is how little we make of our own sins and how much we make of the sins of others. In other words, we will justify or push aside real, I mean, anthropology. I've talked about this a thousand times. The hierarchy of persons created in white Christian spaces where white was at the top and black was at the bottom and different people were in the spectrum in between. That functioned as a theological grid in America for, for 400 years, effectively. And that's just what happened. And so that's not a small mistake. And it's not, and people say that those were just men of their times. No, there were black Christians who were there saying, this is heretical. And here are the Bible verses why. And so you need, people have to own the failures of their theological community and don't have themselves as the hero in the narrative where every time the church is in trouble, they swooped in and saved the scriptures. That all of us, all of us, all of us are heroes and enemies. I mean, we're heroes and villains at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I say that not valorizing the black church because the black church has done things wrong in its own history. So it's not like we are this holy, perfect, sanctified community that's never done anything wrong and that everyone should just live in Like we have our own bodies too. But the best thing to do about that is to own it, repent of it, have a little bit of humility and come to the table as a partner and not a ruler. Um, sorry, I have about three different directions I want to go. And I, and I realize I'm running over your time a little bit here, so I'll keep it short. Um, you've been uh, talking to my friends down in Brazil, I see. Uh, yes. And uh, one thing that's a little bit horrifying some for me sometimes is, you know, I teach in Brazil and in parts of Africa every once in a while. And, um, and you show up and you find basically that before you got there, not only did the Holy Spirit already get there, but also some white theologian uh, that, yeah. that they're essentially in their context rehearsing theology that was given to them by someone who lives in power and opulence in another land that really can't in any way imagine uh, the theological scenario on the ground there. So what do do you do in those moments where you realize, you know, out of respect, reverence, I mean, it's often respect for an entire theological system and culture that really doesn't in any way, or it doesn't, doesn't match well with the, the situation on the ground. Like, how do you help them in some ways, re, uh, revalue the, their own theological perspective. I think that reading while black was the reason why I think it's done well in Brazil is precisely because it did that in my context. Hmm. In other words, um, I think so. This, this is how I think about being from another culture. One of the things, and this is actually true. So when I speak about um, like white Christian spaces. I'm not speaking as a hypothesis. I've lived in these spaces for 15 to 20 years. I know them. And also know Black Christian spaces. And so if I am critical, it's it's, it's a criticism born of real experience that spent decades asking questions, understanding its complexities. I know that white Christianity is not one thing. 
One of the things that happens is that people think they can sit from their context and criticize, for example, black churches. And they go, why don't black people talk about this? And you've never, you don't know what black people talk about because right. you don't hang around black people. You periodically invite a black person in and you ask them certain questions. You don't live in the communities. And so whenever I go to a community that's different than mine, I don't immediately think that which is different is inferior. And I go as a learner. And after I feel like I, I I really understand the nuances, then the second thing that I would do is, or whatever, the, the next thing that I would do is ask questions. Not criticisms yet, questions. Okay, like, I've done the best that I could to understand this. You know, I've tried to reserve judgment just because it was different from what I understand. But this is a question that I have about, like, what's going on? And then after I've listened to that, and if I have, and if I've been invited into the conversation, then I might be able to offer critique. Hmm. But I think that that's at least how I do it. So, like, I when, when people ask me about what I had to say to the church in Brazil, what I've actually tried to say is, I believe that you have the the the, the, the competence to do your own work and to find yourselves um, under the authority of God's word, but free to pursue how God is speaking to the people of Brazil. Beyond that, I don't feel like I have the right to say anything to Brazilian Christians. I don't have the right to say anything. To, like, there's a very few cultures that I know well. You know, I know academic culture, and I got some words for us. <laughs> I'll probably leave it alone. Uh, you know, but I don't, I, don't, I don't have hot takes for every Christian community because I don't know them. Yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a good example, and um, even really sensitive, like power issues in the Brazilian church. I've spent a lot of time in the Brazilian church and belonged to one for 10 years. And um, yeah, even kind of what I would call high reverence for the pastor, can, it took me forever to see when that tips over into almost soft idolatry, you know, and, and how do you call people to the carpet on that? And, yeah, like I was but, saying, like I, like you would say that and I would say, don't know. I have no, yeah. like, and like, that's what I mean. Like, it takes a long time because what appears to be the case is often much more complicated. Right, right. And I think that it's the assumption. That's when I talk about epistemic humility and assuming, um, learning how not to assume that you're competent to judge and fix the world is a, it, it would be a gift to the church. More people recognize their limitations. Well, Dr. Isama Macaulay, thank you very much for your wisdom and your writing and your speaking on this topic. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.